Hi, I'm Alexandra Segade, and I'm back to present the second episode of Visual Aid's new podcast. Visual Aid's uses art to fight AIDS by provoking dialogue, supporting HIV-positive artists, and preserving a legacy because AIDS is not over. In this podcast series, we're covering Strip AIDS 2020, a series of four newly commissioned comics that have just launched online at visualaids.org comics. The comics address contemporary issues surrounding HIV and AIDS and were chosen from an open call. They will all be part of a forthcoming exhibition presented by Visual Aids that was proposed and curated by UK-based artist Paul Samet. The exhibition was due to open in summer 2020, but was delayed due to COVID-19. It is now being planned for summer 2021. Comics was chosen as the focus for the next exhibition, as it's a highly accessible medium that has long been used as educational tools in the fight against HIV and AIDS. Comics have provided life-saving information about safer sex practices and represented communities and perspectives often erased from public health narratives. These four new commissions by J. Amaro and A. Andrews, Carlo Quispe, Mel Rachu, and Inez Sierra and Clio Sadie aim to continue this legacy of using comics to bring attention to the AIDS pandemic and to work against stigma by sharing the experiences of people living with HIV. To celebrate the release of these projects, we've invited each of the artists to be in conversation with fellow AIDS activists and artists to discuss some of the themes and issues that are tackled in their work. Today we are jumping into the subject of HIV criminalization, looking at the comic Legalize Positivity by Inez Isierda and Cleo Sadie. Both artists work in the Bay Area and are also involved in abolitionist and transformative justice projects. Joining Cleo and Inez is Robert Suttle, an activist and co-founder of the Ciro Project, who has personally experienced HIV criminalization and worked against current legal practices for many years. HIV criminalization refers to a variety of laws that specifically target people living with HIV. These laws vary from state to state, but most of them criminalize the act of HIV non-disclosure. That means that people who are positive can be at risk of prosecution and incarceration for consensual sex if they don't notify their partner of their HIV status or, more realistically, if they can't provide documentation that proves that they disclosed. These laws don't care if condoms are used, if someone has an undetectable viral load, or any other aspects that affect the actual risk of transmission. Even in states that don't have HIV-specific laws, like New York, people living with HIV can be punished under public health laws. These are deeply problematic practices that only exacerbate the harm of the HIV pandemic. Cleo and Inez's comic, Legalized Positivity, speaks to the history of how these laws came about. So let's switch over to them to hear more. So Cleo and Inez, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to create this comic, Legalized Positivity? Hello, Robert. What's up? Thanks so much for being in conversation with us today. Um, yeah, a little bit about this comic background. Uh, um, well, I guess maybe I'll just introduce myself first. My name is Inez Izquierda. I'm a queer, disabled, interdisciplinary artist here in Oakland, California, Ohlone land. And I've been drawing comics for the last couple of years. So me and Cleo uh, had been talking about collaborating on a project. And uh, Cleo, I don't know if you want to add anything uh, to that. 
Um, hi, my name is Cleo Reese-Sadie. Um, I am a disabled queer comics artist, um, also living in Oakland. Um, and I'm currently working on a graphic novel um, exploring transformative justice and community responses to violence um, that takes place in like a post-apocalyptic Bay Area setting. Um, yeah, just using comics as a way of thinking about um, some of the these complex issues around like um, sexual violence and um, retribution models for punishment and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, great. Well, um, either of you can tell me what draws you to comics or illustrations and, and why does it feel important to make this particular comic? Um, I'm drawn to use comics to illustrate um, narratives because it brings together all these visuals and um, is such an accessible form for so many people to engage with material like this. Um, We were both um, have been previously connected to people who have been targeted by HIV criminalization and wanted to make a piece that raised awareness about HIV criminalization and made a statement against it. Same. Yeah, same. Um, and just to add to that, you know, as a, especially right now at this time in the world, you know, just trying to be looking for and creating resources that talk about some of these like really complicated issues that bring up like structural inequality and, you know, um, white supremacy and all those things, but making it in a format where, you know, a young person could look at it and get it immediately because, uh, you know, they already get it. They just uh, another format to expose them to some information and ourselves as well. Well, absolutely. I, I definitely agree with that. Because when I first saw it, I was like, wow, yes. Like, like, yes, it's just like somebody gets it. And because this issue is such a complicated thing, uh, talking about HIV criminalization, it takes people a while to really get it. And I think you all really captured it quite well in your illustrations. So um, are there are other activisms or what other activisms are you engaged with? Um, I, I organized with a radical queer direct action group called Gay Shame and um, learned a lot about HIV criminalization through that group. I have a background in prison abolition work uh, from a direct prisoner support, um, specifically at Pelican Bay State Prison. I was a legal investigator there for about five years. And um, after that, I kind of started working more in doing a survivor advocacy and survivor-led responses to harm outside of the police and outside of the court system. And so those are kind of projects that inform this comic. And I would love to hear more, um, Robert, about your background also and just um, some of the different things that you're working on. Oh, excellent. I um, have had the pleasure of working with many different groups uh, in the past. And so it's just nice to connect with people who um, I've been able to be around that are also doing likewise uh, related work. So uh, thank you both for that. And to introduce myself, um, I personally am someone who experienced HIV criminalization um, a number of years ago. And uh, here today, I am still sort of dealing with the collateral consequences of that. Um, I am originally from Louisiana, which is the state where I was prosecuted. And um, back in 2009, I was, uh, convicted and eventually sentenced to to prison and I served six months in Louisiana prison and aside from that I also had to register as a sex offender uh, for 15 years. I was just someone who was working in the legal system um, uh, coming out of college uh, years ago and just tried to start a career in the legal field. 
unfortunately, um, my life changed when I was facing prosecution. Um, and so everything that I had planned for my life, for my future changed. And so uh, shortly after getting out of prison, I became, I started volunteering and at aid service organizations. And I was approached to talk about um, HIV criminalization to do this work nationally. And so a colleague that I connected with um, asked me if I left, if I was interested in starting the organization. And so that organization was called the Ciro Project. And so back in 2012, I helped co-found that organization and have been with the organization for about seven or eight years. And so now I am uh, moving on uh, within the HIV movement and uh, becoming a social justice educator and just continue to do this work around HIV criminalization and also connecting with other movement leaders that are doing work uh, that support uh, racial justice and, and healing and transformative uh, justice and all those things. And so this this uh, illustration, this comic, the, the topics, the issues, the, the things that you all cover in this are things that I definitely can attest to, uh, have been a witness to um, for a number of years. And, um, and it's become not only my, my life, but also uh, the thing that I do professionally now is uh, talking about this issue, as well as other issues. And it has really exposed me to a lot of things that I was not aware of. And so um, I want to just continue to thank you uh, both for, for this piece and, and just uh, being open uh, to the issues that we all are ex may have experienced at one time or another in our lives with the communities that we are connected to. So let's move forward. Let's talk about this legalized positivity. And I know many people that will listen to this podcast won't be able to see it. So what we will do our best to sort of illustrate what, the, what each page looks like. Um, especially the cover. I mean, it says a lot of things. And so, um, so the three of us are gonna walk through the comic together and describe the pages and the ideas that came up um, for each. So, um, so who wants to start us off? Uh, let's talk about the cover. Awesome. I'll, I'll start off on that because um, I drew the cover. So um, this was when we, one of the images that kind of came to me when we were first, first talking, when me and Claire were talking about the idea of what would a comic about HIV criminalization maybe look like, because it's so baffling the idea that you could criminalize a virus, right? And so kind of want to capture, capture that. So the cover is um, these kind of twisted handcuffs that are breaking and then from behind them are coming these um, kind of wet, uh, HIV cells that are floating in the environment and it says uh, legalized positivity. Yeah, and so since, you know, the, we talk about the rise of mass incarceration in the US, I mean, and like the legacy of slavery, you know, I always wondered how did it come to where we're criminalizing HIV? And I, even, I also say that HIV is just another way to prosecute people, just another piece of the, the mass incarcerate, pie of mass incarceration. Um, it's a thing that many people aren't aware of, um, but it is something that's happened. And, and again, it's just, an, as I say, it's another way to lock up Black people. And so we talked about the, the cover. And so to move forward, um, the first issue I'd like to address is the rise of mass incarceration in the U.S., uh, the legacy of slavery. Uh, how I, And I can see this uh, described in your illustration. So tell me a little bit about it if you will. Yeah, we, um, the opening illustration about mass incarceration uh, shows two corrections officers um, forcing a black man uh, through a prison. 
And um, on a ribbon kind of surrounding that, there's the Bureau of Justice statistic about the disproportionate prosecution of um, and jailing of black men in America. Um, and so we were trying to set the stage for um, what we were talking about with the 13th Amendment um, at the outset of the comic. It was interesting because, uh, you know, when we first started, we were like, well, the root of this is kind of thinking about like Reagan and the 80s and that kind of um, when uh, prisons really started just massively expanding in the United States. And then we're like, oh, we've got to go before that. we got to go before that. We're like, how far back can we go in this like eight page comic? And we had to just go all, you know, we didn't go back as far as we could. But yeah, the roots are deep. Yeah. And I think you all, it's. I mean, it's really started happening around the 1970s and of course the 80s, the HIV epidemic hit. And then we say that these HIV criminalization laws started in the late 80s, early 90s. So you're definitely right. We do have to, to go back to show people just where it started. And if you have an administration that could never just mention the word AIDS or HIV, um, that in the itself is a problem. And yeah, tell me about this, this also second page here. Uh, which you touched on, I, I can definitely relate to this, uh, men sitting around um, watching the news um, or the television while incarcerated, sitting there together. And it's, uh, it, give us, describe this, this particular page. Yeah, we have men who are incarcerated watching um, Reagan on TV and are talking about how Reagan is refusing to address the AIDS crisis, um, even though thousands had died. Um, just to contextualize the the interconnection between what Reagan was doing and this like explosion of incarceration where the incarcerated population doubled. Yeah, because also around that same time we had, of course, leading to the war on drugs and, and other things. So all these different issues were happening at the same time and um, which goes to say that we don't live single issue lives, right? So uh, this is just one aspect of it. Uh, so HIV criminalization laws were codified in stigma, anti-gay panic, and the narratives of blame. And I see on this next page that you sort of capture a, a lot of this from religion to, to the American flag or whatever that symbolizes. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, this page um, was really trying to just uh, reference all those different pieces that were impacting public perception and um, the law, like that, what was informing laws that were being proposed and made and just the social context of extreme right, conservative, uh, homophobic and racist dialogue around the disease. And also on the next page, I, I noticed the headlines, it, you know, um, because that is part of it too, the sensationalization of, of uh, the HIV monitor predator, uh, if you will. You have some thoughts on, tell us about that page. Yeah, this page is uh, based all on actual headlines, actual commercials, and um, from the time period that we're addressing different parts of um, the kind of, of HIV criminalization, the beginning of that. And so when we're talking about media, we're not just talking about like the newspapers and the super sensational headlines, but also, you know, state and county sponsored health ads that were saying things like people like you get this disease and um, the language used was very othering, you know, and really focusing a lot on um, extreme cases like, uh, so, um, you know, we, we do a lot of research in the comics, uh, kind of reference some um, like 
studies that really show how disproportionate the representations of um, cases of HIV exposure are compared to the coverage of it. Yeah, and I notice here on the, as much as said on the next page and this illustration of, uh, well, I'll let you describe it with the officer uh, uh, arresting or, or or trying to restrict this, this person who obviously has, it seems to be in the straw in a, uh, either a mental way or in a health, health uh, condition. Explain this illustration. Uh, I drew this, but I was um, wondering, Cleo, if you could talk a little bit about this topic. Oh, yeah. Um, we were noticing when we were looking at um, different examples of um, HIV criminalization charges mm -hmm. that um, it was coming up a lot in medical context that people who were being restrained um, on mental health related um, situations were getting these enhanced um, charges based on like things that happened during these like obviously really distressed times. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it was definitely striking as this way of discriminating further against people with HIV. Uh, yeah, and just to add to that, uh, one of the pieces that uh, we kept coming across um, both in the media and in these records is this idea of spit, you know, and we're, we, we kept coming back to it because spit, you know, doesn't even transmit yet it is um, a chargeable offense to get your spit on someone. So, and especially with mental health crises, a spit got on an officer, folks were, um, you know, they're going from the hospital to prison. And um, so we, we want to highlight that because uh, it so extremely exposes like um, how the, the harm, the, the role of harm and lack of harm in these laws. Yeah, and how egregious it has gotten to the fact that we think that spitting and biting um, is a way that people can contract HIV, which is such the contradiction that HIV cannot be transmitted through spitting and biting. And even now that people on antiretroviral treatment can have an undetectable viral load, which makes them, which makes it a zero possibility that they can transmit the virus, um, yet spitting is still considered an assault in the criminal code. Uh, for people living with HIV. So yeah, thank you for capturing that because that is something that many people wouldn't even think about. And yet that is a particular point that just does not seem to make sense, but yet, you know, here it is on the law. And so, which leads us to talk about, you know, disproportionate impact, which is on the next page, uh, next two pages. Um, and I see you, you know, quoted statistics here in regards to who is mostly impacted are disproportionately impacted in the criminal justice system. So describe this. The illustration is, takes place in a police department where we see people who have been detained and are awaiting, um, presumably being processed into going to jail. And um, there's a white man who's being released um, in the background. Um, and this was to illustrate the fact that disproportionately, um, in particular, that they were finding that white men were released and not charged in 61% of incidences. And um, as compared with 44% of incidences for black women, 39% for white women, and 38% for black men. Um, so just trying to illustrate um, how like at every level there is discrimination playing into it. Mm -hmm. um, in particular, like in those moments where there's like discretion from officers where they can decide to release someone and not charge that that discrimination is taking place on that level as well. 
Yeah, and and going as far as even just criminalizing uh, the people who cannot pay. You know, if you don't have money to to bail yourself out, or the bail is set so high, then you know you will be forced to to stay. And so it's almost like criminalizing you for being poor. You know, criminalizing poverty, as we as we say. Um, and the other aspect of that is, I was just going to say, like, absolutely. And, and thank you for saying that, because that's also literally, it's not just literally criminalizing poor folks. But, um, you know, we know that not everyone is getting automatically tested, like who is getting these enhancements, who's being assumed to have it and then being verified. And, you know, it's only a certain population. So that's another level of disproportionate uh, targeting and impact. And we also have the other side of this in solitary confinement. Um, you know, I I myself was put in administ- what I call administrative segregation, but now I know that it's, it was solitary confinement. Um, and I didn't, it was a lot of things I didn't know when I was incarcerated, but now that I've learned since being out, like, wow, that, you know, I see what, what they're doing uh, to us. And I was a person living with HIV. I was also a gay person. So I was a little confused then as to exactly why was I put in solitary confinement. And... Um, because for me, I think at that time, for me, the thought that I had was because I was HIV positive, but it seems to be the double or triple, triple, you know, whammy of being black, gay, and HIV positive. Um, and I see you've captured that here in this illustration. Can you talk a little bit about, like, what was that process like? Like, when you say, like, you didn't even really know, was it just, like, automatic or, like... Yeah, thank you for asking. Well, the first thing I observed was that I was in a different jumpsuit. My jumpsuit was either, I think, believe it was red, and the general population or the men that I saw, their jumpsuit was orange. And at some point, we were all together, I guess, through processing. And then at some point, as we were walking through the facility, we separated. And of course, me not <laughs> knowing what's going on, I'm, I'm just there going through the motions. Um, I was, then I found myself alone uh, away from all the other group of men, but also in the place where I was, there were other people there who were just as alone as I was in their own individual cell. So uh, at that time, I really didn't understand the structure or anything like that, but that that's really uh, was my experience and experience of others. And I saw people that were either like me or different than me. Uh, but now I look back, I'm like, these people were my part of my community as a as a gay man, as an HIV positive person, as a black man. Um, these were people who were of trans experience and and other experiences, right? And so um, I didn't know that then. So I learned that, you know, so much more now learning about the other experiences of others. And uh, yeah, that's what that experience was like. You're by yourself for 23 hours, and you come out for, you know food and then you may get an hour for recreation or whatever that is and so yeah it is very uh confining and solitary what was like your access to medical care or medical support like um that is a very good question because uh it's either hit or miss you know especially if you're taking more than one particular type of medication um but it just also depends on the facilities, you know, and whether or not they have the budgets to support providing you your medication. And so coming in, you know, they're not really knowing your history and, and where to pull the proper information about your medical, about medications or your medical history. 
you know, could determine whether or not you would get adequate or the proper medications that you require being someone who has uh, underlying health conditions, you know, facing incarceration. Um, yeah, it's either hit or miss. And so, and also being transferred from different facilities, you never know where you're going to end up as far as a facility that has a hospital system or some sort of structure within or partnership outside of that uh, facility uh, with the state or um, or just a place that doesn't have, the again, the budget to provide the medications or adequate food. So, yeah. um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That Yeah, I think that it's kind of like what we're in the comic, what we were trying to reference is, is part of what you're talking about, which is this huge additional kind of sentence that folks have to have to carry. Like what you're saying, the isolation, the being sick, not feeling well, not knowing, like all of those things. And then, um, you know, going on even after folks are out there, there's a bunch of other things that keep following. So, um, you know, I guess um, I'm just trying to like tie this to like that whole idea that HIV criminalization is is more than just actually that that prison sentence. There's this huge impact um, that you know. I mean, I'm I'm only referencing the tiny piece that we know about, and I don't know Cleo or Robert if if there's other parts of that. There's kind of like that additional toll. Yeah, you touched on it. It's going there. You know, the other as it called the collateral consequences of a conviction. Um, particularly around HIV, uh, for me, it was the sex offender status in the state of Louisiana. There's six states in this country that requires, may require sex offender registration, and I was prosecuted in one of them. And so it does affect people's ability to, to find jobs, find adequate housing, to get services. And so you captured this also in the illustration here that I would love for you to describe, um, and we can talk about it further. Absolutely. Thank you. Um... Yeah, the, we wanted to have an illustration that captures the the kind of um, individual discrimination that can happen with having that sex offender status. Um, we show a man who's applying for um, either a job or maybe an apartment um, and having to deal with this um, question of having checked the box um, that he's been convicted of a felony um, just to show how the punishments are designed to go outside of prison time and to stigmatize people and prevent them from having access to the things like the life chances that people should have. Yeah, and I love this saying on the next page, you know, why, even why there's consent, even without transmission, what is the harm? You can't punish a virus. How does this make us safer? Um, I, when I see this page, I just like want to scream it out loud, you know, because this is what we're, this is what we're thinking, you know, uh, and what we want to say. And it, it is something that to really think about, like, really, what is the harm? Why do we have such a disdainment for, uh, for HIV and for people who are living with HIV to the point we want to criminalize them and just do, them, do away with them? And, um, and another point that I wanted to add is just uh, there were many people living with HIV in prison that I've learned, uh, not necessarily for HIV criminalization, but just happened to be HIV positive. Uh, living in prison. And of course, whether they may have been aware of it or not, they too, if they were found to be engaged in any type of sexual behavior, things like that, that they are spitting on someone or whatever, that they can still be charged even within prison for a new charge. You know, so um, 
the harm just it, that particular harm uh, just continues on even in the setting of incarceration. Um, did you want to add any more to to the illustration of the, these words that you have on this page? Yeah, yeah. Um, that that idea of like, how does this make us safer? Um, you know, I think that this like really inspired a lot of our conversations, um, and especially like now, because as you know, as we came to the end of the comic, the pandemic was coming, right? And so how that was kind of informing how we were talking about, you know if we are actually thinking about what makes us safer, we would consider the harms of prison and the harms of criminalizing people and how that also impacts our community, right? So, um, and that would shift our response. And I think right now that's a conversation that, that's happening. It's, um, you know, right, it's beginning to. So um, it's really challenging and it's also kind of a, a new opportunity maybe. Yeah, and, and towards the end of the comic, I see here you have about, um, ending HIV criminalization and explaining here about the laws uh, that exist now in this present time across the country. Uh, explain this. I, I love the, the fact that this, well, I'll let you describe, but I love the fact that this judge having this gavel and, and this words are fundamentally fucked up because that's really, <laughs> it all, it all is. That's really the bottom line. It all is. And so, and then on the second page you have here, many people holding up in HIV criminalization, which this reminds me of the, my, one of my days of activism out there during the 2012 uh, International AIDS Conference in DC. We had the banners and we're marching the streets of DC. So yeah, tell us about uh, these two illustrations. Uh, Cleo, did you wanna talk about the, um, that first page? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, it was definitely trying to sum up um, like just the, the gravity of the situation and how widespread the HIV criminalization laws are like after making this case for how, um, why, are, why are they, you know, we understand why they were trying to punish people and how it um, reinforces systemic oppression. Um, but just like really looking at the scope of it, how many states and countries still have these laws um, and just trying to make our case that this is fundamentally fucked up. And that term was actually inspired by um, one of the very uh, few people that have been able to get their uh, charges overturned. And when the, when the court's ruling that uh, they said that the the whole case and all the whole context and media coverage was fundamentally unfair. And um, that was one of, and so we wanted, we we're just like, yeah, actually this whole thing is fundamentally unfair. <laughs> so that was the inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's no, been no consideration of science. You know, uh, as we say, people who've been on antiviral treatment cannot possibly transmit the virus to people. And yet these laws still exist. And the, this is why we do the work of uh, uh, decriminalizing HIV. Uh, to make people aware um, that they're not even considering the science of this. It doesn't require criminal intent. You don't necessarily have to transmit HIV to anybody to be convicted, to even be arrested. Um, just a mere accusation of not disclosing or exposing someone is enough. And if you, in fact, had sex with someone, um, you know, and you're HIV positive, that's really all it takes. That's really all it takes. And they'll arrest you and, and put you in jail before, and then you can figure out the details later, <laughs> you know, if you're lucky uh, to not face prosecution. So yeah, it's, I mean, that pretty much just sums it up in three words, <laughs> fundamentally <laughs> fucked up, um, which is why we need to end HIV criminalization. 
Um, what are yes, some, yes, I was just wanted to ask um, in response, like, what are some of the those kind of like the key areas right now that you see on the the front lines of HIV decriminalization activism? Well, one, HIV criminalization looks differently in different parts of the country, uh, from like California to from Georgia, from Ohio to Missouri. It just depends on the political climate there um, in those particular states and, and who you really have to, you know, really advocate so much harder for, whether it be sex workers, whether it be people who inject drugs or black gay men. Um, so it, it just depends. It looks it just looks different. In different countries, so that's why we have to work together to communicate, um, you know, around our, our needs in terms of advocating um, and advocacy and speaking to uh, people in power who uh, can make these decisions. And so, uh, some of the activism uh, I've, for me, I've been able to work with uh, many different groups, some women, women groups, uh, those who are living with HIV, Positive Women's Network. Um, Thrive is a great organization in, in Atlanta that's uh, a part of uh, the movement. Um, gosh, the Zero Project, which is an organization that I was a part of, um, the Counter Narrative Project. Um, so there's been many um, groups that have come together that now we've come, they've come together to produce this conference called HIV is Not a Crime Training Academy, basically. And so we bring in uh, people from all across the country and even country the out of the US, because <laughs> uh, this is we're part of HIV Justice Worldwide Network, if you will. And so together we come together, strategize, educate ourselves about HIV criminalization, building statewide coalitions in different states um, across the country. And so it started out with just people living with HIV, organized by people living with HIV, for people living with HIV, but we've since expanded now because we recognize the importance uh, the fact of how we need to work together and how uh, these issues intersect and how we're all disproportionately impacted um, by the criminal justice system. So it's, it's, it's much more broader than it's ever been. And uh, we would have had it this past summer, but because of COVID that has ended. So we postponed it till um, to next year um, to make up for this year. And so where we are right now, we have many coalitions across the country, I think over a dozen of them, or maybe 15 to 20 of them now, which is great. The, the movement has built up uh, greatly. We've had four to five states uh, to change their laws. Uh, we've loved to repeal these laws, but you know how that, that word goes, we had to modernize the law now because to repeal would be considered soft on crime. And, um, and so, the lessons that we've learned that one, um, it's a long road, but it's not impossible. Other lessons we have learned that we've had laws change in conservative states, in red states, and had Republicans also be a sort of leaders uh, 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 introducing legislation um, and getting those laws passed. For example, in Iowa, laws passed in California, Colorado. Uh, legislation introduced in in Florida, um, in Georgia, as well as um, one state ex escapes me, I, for, I forget it. Um, but that, if you look back many years, back in 2012, many people would have thought this was impossible. <laughs> um, but it has become possible. And so it's been nice to just be able to have different groups of people uh, from academics to public health. Uh, I mean, just a range of people to work together. And so um, 
what what lies ahead for us is really being able to connect to other movements and being able to work together on this. And so I think that we have the momentum that we need. We have the foundations, Elizabeth Taylor Foundation, the Elton John AIDS Foundation, and many other foundations, funders concerned about AIDS, many different groups of funders that are interested in, in supporting this work uh, and funding this work. And um, I'm just, just glad to be a part of it and to have contributed in, in such a way. So you, the work that you guys are doing here to illustrate this issue, like it, it you're adding, <laughs> you're just adding to the tools, you're creating tools for us out there in the fields uh, for advocacy. And um, I see three words here, abolition, reform, and decriminalization. You know, I, I'm all for all three, and I understand the impact that reform can have on people that it can create harm, other harms, you know, and so that's why it's so important for us to work together and communicate uh, because we don't want, I personally feel no one should be criminalized um, for HIV because of, there's just so many misunderstandings about it. And it's HIV that we give the char negative character. It's not, uh, it's just a virus. It is what it is. Um, and you mentioned also something, Inez, there parallels with COVID and HIV in terms of criminalization. This is something that we're fearful of um, in one way, in that, you know, it's like we don't know how to treat COVID. Uh, and instead, people who are greatly impacted are, you know, are the ones that are going to be criminalized. Um, so it's almost, this, it's just as similar to what was going on with HIV. Um, the other part of it is that we hope that with the work that the movement has done um, that the many legislators in those states that have been successful with changing their laws will be instrumental in preventing having these COVID, COVID in the criminal code like HIV is. Um, we, that is our hope that they will be champ continue to be champions to, to explain why COVID should not be criminalized um, just as they did with HIV. And so um, not sure what that's going to look like. We, I mean, we have to continue to live this out and see what's going to happen. Um, and who knows, maybe you all will be, you know, I, you know, doing a comic to illustrate that, which will be, of course, powerful in itself. But I think there are many lessons in what you've produced here that many people hopefully could learn from and relate that to COVID. So we have uh, a few minutes left before we wrap up. Um, are there any um, other things, points that you that you might have missed that we didn't share that we didn't go over, or anything that you would love to to uh, say here? Um, just that the hope with like creating a piece like this is like to reach many people and hopefully help create a shift in how people perceive, like just kind of the um, this the social environment that promotes that makes it so that people can be criminalized in this way, like hoping, mm -hmm. hoping to shift it on a, like on a broader cultural level. I was going to say, I think one thing that uh, my experience with seeing COVID and the pandemic and um, kind of how that's impacted public conversation is a lot more discussion of, of what is our responsibility to each other. And that's a conversation I really am excited, I think is beautiful to engage in and very much at the core of a lot of criminalization. And one thing about criminalization is it just doesn't work, right? So on top of, by its own logic, it doesn't work. So it's not even solving the, the, the issues of any potential, you know, 
uh, gaps in our responsibilities to each other, like that it doesn't solve them. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about that a lot, and I, I, I believe, you know, that it's totally possible to change these things. I'm really hopeful. And one thing I definitely want to say um, as part of this conversation is just, uh, you know, a huge thank you to all the the Black and Indigenous and queer and trans HIV positive ancestors out there who whose work and lives and struggle completely informs anything that we know. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That is is so true and it's so clear for me uh, today. And that's why I want to do my part because they did what they had to do <laughs> in order for us to be where we are today. And so it, it is up to us to continue that fight and to and encounter the narratives that are out there, you know, about um, people. I am thoroughly convinced that these laws are really not all about protecting people, but they're really all about you know, criminalizing people. They're, they're doing what they were designed to do. And um, so we're just going to continue to do what we do best, and that's organized and, and fight back. And I want to thank you all for, for just this, this illustration. I'm definitely going to be sharing it and talking about it um, with people within my network, because I think it's a definitely worthy piece. And um, I look forward to seeing what else you all are producing. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your time and um and your labor uh on this thank awesome. you so much robert for, thank you for for bringing like your experiences and your perspective to this it's been really like a pleasure to meet you and um i'm really excited about your work from 1954 to 1989 comics in service of decriminalization weren't strictly speaking legal the Comics Code policed depictions of crime, stating that crimes shall never be presented in such a way as to create sympathy for the criminal. I remember these words, approved by the Comics Code Authority, stamped on comics you could find at the local drugstore, and I recall vaguely wondering what the old-timey typography meant when I used to spend my weekly allowance on issues of X-Men. A response to Senate hearings on juvenile delinquency, the Comics Code was established by publishers as a way to censor themselves and avoid government regulation. The public outcry against comics was prompted by the 1954 publication of Seduction of the Innocents by Frederick Wortham, which claimed that sex and violence in comics was having an adverse effect on the youth of America in the 1950s. Among his observations, Wonder Woman was promoting BDSM practices and Batman and Robin were gay partners. With regard to sexuality, the code declared that illicit sex relations are neither to be hinted at nor portrayed. Sex perversion or any inference to same is strictly forbidden. Profanity, obscenity, smut, vulgarity, or words or symbols which have acquired undesirable meanings are forbidden. Of course, you could skip the code entirely. Underground comics flourished in the 1970s in which all kinds of previously forbidden desires spilled across cheaply printed pages. Strip AIDS 2020, curated by Paul Samet, is part of a larger exhibition looking at comics and HIV that would have taken place this past summer in NYC. The show is being rescheduled, and a new date will be announced in 2021. In the meantime, stay tuned for new podcast episodes each week as we dive into the three other comics that are part of Strip Aids 2020. And don't forget to check out the rest of the project at visualaids.org slash comics, where you can also see links to other works by the artists involved. 
Finally, I want to give a big thank you on behalf of Visual Aids to Robert Settle, Inezi Sierra, and Cleo Sadie, as well as Fletcher Allison, who recorded and edited this episode, and Paul Samet for curating the project. You can find out more about Visual Aids work at their website, visualaids.org, on Facebook at Facebook slash Visual Aids, and on Twitter and Instagram at visual underscore aids. Strip Aids 2020 was funded in part by the New York Community Trust Diffa Fund. The Strip Aids 2020 website and this podcast is funded in part by Humanities New York with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. I'm Alexandra Segade. Until next time.